Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 26th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The nation's infrastructure, its roads, its bridges, and rail lines are old. And policymakers on the federal to local level often debate how to fix or maintain them. But what about the nation's dams? Today we learn about an Associated Press investigation into these structures. The AP looked at data on dams in 44 states and Puerto Rico and found nearly 1,700 pose a potential risk. These include a handful of dams in Connecticut. Coming up, we'll talk with a member of the Dam Safety Program for the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Now, have you thought about the safety of dams near where you live? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome uh, the first guest to the show, David Lieb, correspondent for the Associated Press. He's based in Jefferson City, Missouri. Uh, David, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Glad to be with you. Uh, I think it's safe to say uh, many of us aren't thinking about uh, dams in our backyards. So what prompted you and your colleagues to, to investigate uh, the dam infrastructure in our country? Well, what prompted this AP project was really a lack of information. For example, the federal government does keep information on the nation's dams. It's called the National Inventory of Dams, and it lists more than 90,000 dams across the country. You can go there online and you can see a dam's name, you can see its location, you can see other details about it. But one thing you cannot see is the condition of the dam, and that is because the federal government has closed that information to the public This is something that grew out of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks when they had some concerns that if this information was available to the public, that it somehow might make dams a target for terrorists. Mm. Well, that makes it difficult for the public to know if they're living close to a dam that actually could be dangerous for them. Uh, So what the AP did is we sent open records requests to dam safety offices in all 50 states, and we asked for the information that they had submitted to the federal government. Most states complied, and with that information, looking at the federal data and the data we got from the states, we were able to put together our own database on dams across the country that listed both the condition of the dam and the hazard level of the dam. And just as a bit of background here, a hazard level uh, talks about what would happen if a dam were to fail. A high hazard dam is one where if it were to fail, there is a likelihood that people would die. Uh, So those are the dams we focused on. Condition ratings are much like they sound. They could range from essentially good, fair, poor, or unsatisfactory. So the AP's investigation honed in on those set of dams that are both high hazard and in poor or unsatisfactory condition. And you found that there are 1,688 dams that fit that uh, condition. Uh, But again, you weren't able to get information from all the states. So this number could be higher. The number likely is higher. So there were five states that did not fully comply with the AP's requests. Uh, One of those, Alabama, just does not have a dam safety regulatory office. They're the only state in the country that does not. 
than some of the other states that didn't comply included Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey. Uh, they declined to give us the condition ratings of their dams, citing exemptions in their own state's open records laws, much like the federal government had. And then Texas also declined to give us some information. They declined to give us the hazard level of their dams. So in those five states, we were unable to match up the key data to determine if there were dams that fell into this category. Most likely there are. So that number of 1,688, it probably is higher than that. David, can you talk more about uh, the dams that are considered high hazard dams when you say that they're in this condition? You know, what are some of the issues uh, that uh, they have that would make them uh, potential for them to break? So a high hazard dam basically means it's built next to people. It doesn't necessarily mean it's in bad condition. It just means that if it were to fail and release a flood of water, that there are people downstream who could be killed by it. So that's where the second category comes in, and that's the condition rating. Uh, so the condition rating, if it is poor or unsatisfactory, there could be a variety of things. When we read inspection reports from across the country, and in some cases there are obvious things that you would think of, such as there's cracks in a concrete dam, or if it's an earthen dam, like many of them are, there's water seeping through and bubbling up on the backside of the dam. That could indicate that there's Uh, internal erosion. And if that happens, the dam is subject to fail. In some cases, the problems were maybe what you wouldn't expect. In an earthen dam, there may be rodents burrowing holes in the dam, literally, or or they're just overgrowing with trees or brush. And if that big tree were to fall down, well, it would, its roots would come up and take a chunk out of the side of the dam. Uh, In other cases, uh, problems are some you may not expect or may not be able to tell just from looking at it. One of the more common problems we found were dams with inadequate spillway capacities. And what that means is those dams are just unable to handle the maximum amount of water that might come at them in a major rainfall event. Uh, this, This matters because if a spillway can't release water, then it's likely water would come over the top of a dam. And when water starts flowing over the top of a dam, particularly if it's an earthen dam, it starts eroding the backside of that dam, which increases the likelihood that it can just fall down and unleash a flood. Well, we're speaking with David Lieb, correspondent for the Associated Press. He's based in Jefferson City, Missouri, about a two-year investigation by the AP that found scores of dams, uh, 1,688 uh, to be exact, uh, nationwide that are in bad shape. Um, and we're talking about uh, some of the reasons uh, why that is. Uh, when we think about these dams as well, uh, David, uh, many of them built a long time ago? The average age of a dam across the country is more than a half century old, more than 50 years old. Well, that means some of them are even older than that. Uh, that means there are dams out there that are a century year old, even more than that. And the Northeast is one of those areas where it's not uncommon to find dams that were originally built in the 1800s. We're going to be talking about some of the dams uh, that fit uh, that uh, timeline uh, uh, when they were built here in Connecticut uh, later on uh, where we live. Uh, but I wanted to talk more about uh, this idea that these dams are considered high hazard if uh, they are near people. And so if they were built a long time ago, if there are certain conditions, uh, like you mentioned, cracking uh, or other vegetation uh, maybe hasn't been uh, repaired in some time, what will it take to 
to um, for have for one of these dams to maybe fail, and and is that a concern when we think about uh, increasing uh, extreme weather, uh, flooding, uh, intense uh, uh, tropical storms, and whatnot? I mean, that is something that I think a lot of people um, call to mind uh, when they're worried about uh, infrastructure. And so, what did you find, David? Well, I'll give you an example of a case where this happened. There was a dam in Nebraska this year. It was on a river called the Niobrara River. Uh, The name of the dam was the Spencer Dam, and it's about 91 years old. Uh, It was built for hydroelectricity uh, a long time ago, and it was still producing some hydropower. Now, nowhere near the amount of hydropower that a modern dam would produce, but it was still functioning. Uh, It basically serves as a dam that allows water to pass through. It's really not meant for flood control. So earlier this year, around uh, March or so, there was a major winter weather event in the Great Plains where you had a what they call a cyclone bomb, cyclone bomb storm, a funny name, but it, essentially the, the pressure drops and it, it's bringing lots of snow and rain, and the ground was frozen up there. Uh, so when this snow and then the rain fell on it, Uh, The ice started melting. uh, The river started rising rapidly. And this dam was simply unable to hold back the amount of water and the large ice chunks that were coming at it. So this is what is basically an extreme weather event, the the basic definition of it. The dam failed. uh, And in its path was a a guy that lived just a few hundred yards downstream. Uh, The dam totally washed away his home, his business. His body actually had not been found. And that dam, it actually had been rated as a significant hazard, not a high hazard dam, which would be the the highest level. It maybe should have been rated as a high hazard dam, but because it wasn't under Nebraska law, it was not required to have an emergency action Mm. plan, which would describe what to do, the steps to take, the people to notify uh, when there's a dangerous situation. And this man that lived just beneath the dam had maybe a few minutes warning before it broke. Uh, Some workers from the hydroelectric facility, realizing that they were going to not be able to save the dam, got in their truck, went by this guy's house around five o'clock in the morning, knocked on his door, uh, warned him that the dam was in danger, and then they fled in their truck, leaving him behind. Uh, He never made it out of there. That's a really sad story. They didn't have an emergency plan then. What does the state of Nebraska have now? Well, there's a lawsuit over this, as you might surmise. Uh, And Nebraska, I don't believe, has changed its policies yet. But uh, this is a case where if it had been rated as a high-hazard plan, then the high-hazard facility, then the owners of the dam would have been required to come up with this emergency action plan. There's a separate plan for every dam that exists because circumstances are different in each place. Let's talk about who owns these dams, a majority of them privately owned. And so does that impact how often uh, they're being uh, reviewed and maintained, David? Most of the dams across the country are privately owned. Now, how often dams are inspected really varies by state. In some states, a high hazard dam might be expected, inspected every year or every other year. In some states, though, that's once every five years. Uh, so... That varies widely across the states because there's no national requirement for how often you inspect these facilities. And then it varies even more among states because some states have exemptions uh, to which dams must be inspected. 
So just as an example, in Texas, where there are roughly 7,200 dams, they exempt all dams on private property with a capacity of less than 163 million gallons of water that are rated in significant or low hazard, not high hazard, and are located outside the city limits in any county with fewer than 350,000 people. Now, that's a mouthful. But the bottom line is that roughly 45% of its dams are exempt from regulation. And in Missouri, where there's more than 5,000 dams, they only inspect about 650 of them. And that's because state law exempts all dams that are under 35 feet or used for agricultural purposes or are subject to federal regulation. Mm -hmm. So you can see there really is a sort of a patchwork across the country of how these dams are inspected. Has there been any, been any movement in Congress or within uh, particular lawmakers in these states where there's exemptions that uh, property owners are concerned and they want to see uh, the federal government act or at least provide resources for states, David? I'm not aware that there's been any movement on a federal level to set up a national standard for how often dams must be inspected. But there has been some movement to provide at least a little bit of money. And you might say it's a drop in the bucket, but Nationally, it's been estimated that it could take $70 billion to repair the nation's dams and modernize them. Well, this most recent fiscal year, the 2019 fiscal year, Congress did appropriate $10 million for high hazard dams in poor condition in areas that put people at risk. That money was distributed to about half the states. Basically, every state that applied got a a drop of it. I don't believe Connecticut got any. Uh, That money was not to actually make repairs to the dams, but to fund the initial engineering and planning work for future repairs to these dams. Mm -hmm. You said $70 billion to repair the nation's dams? Yeah, that's the estimate from the Association of State Dam Safety Officials about what it would take if you tried to repair and bring all of these 90,000 dams across the country into modern conditions. When we think about infrastructure, the first thing that may come to mind are roads and bridges. And so uh, this idea that um, that states, even the federal government, is going to be thinking about uh, water infrastructure, uh, is that problematic when you also think about how populations are changing, uh, people are uh, living in high-density areas that may be near dams that, that could fail? Right. So uh, obviously dams are just not something that people think about as frequently as roads and bridges. People use roads and bridges every day. In some cases, people may not be aware that there is a dam that's maybe five miles upstream. Uh, You can't see it. Uh, You're just not aware that it's there. Uh, But one thing that is readily readily apparent by looking at these emergency action plans for dams is that if a dam were to fail, it's not just going to affect the people that live within eyesight of it. That dam is going to unleash water into a creek, which is going to flow into a bigger stream, into a river. And so the flood inundation zone for a dam is, it stretches several miles. You know, it's not just one mile, five miles, ten. It could be 15 miles or more downstream of areas that could be affected, particularly if there's homes in the valley along a riverbed. David Lieb is correspondent for the Associated Press. He's joining us from Jefferson City, Missouri, as we learn more about this two-year investigation looking into uh, na- the nation's dams. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we want to learn more about dams here in Connecticut. Do you live near a dam? Have you thought about whether it's safe? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 26th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. According to an Associated Press investigation of the nation's dams, thousands of people live downstream from dams. What happens if one of them fails? Most states have emergency plans. We wanted to hear about Connecticut's dams and the state program that oversees their condition. Uh, So joining us in studio now is Chuck Lee, Assistant Director of Dam Safety Programs for Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Before we we hear from you, uh, David, I wanted you to drill down and and tell us what you found in this AP National Investigation. David Lieb, correspondent for the Associated Press. Uh, How do Connecticut's dams look? So there, at least according to the data that was submitted to the federal government, there are 282 high-hazard dams in Connecticut. And the AP review found 12 of those high-hazard dams that were rated in poor, unsatisfactory condition. Compared to what we see nationally, that is not a high number, somewhere in the the middle to the bottom half of states. Uh, So I suppose that's a good thing. Uh, The AP review also took a look at funding for dam safety programs. It looks like Connecticut's program has been funded with around $750,000 for pretty much the past decade or so. Uh, We took a look at staffing in the offices, and these figures are all figures that come from reports to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in an annual survey. Looked like Connecticut's office, its dam safety program, had eight full-time people uh, around 2010, and that dropped down to two, to six in 2011, where it's it's been since then. Uh, there were a lot of dam safety offices across the country that had uh, declines in staffing and funding after the Great Recession, and some of those have recovered, and some are still at the same level. I introduced our listeners to Chuck Lee, which through the Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, again, Assistant Director of Dam Safety Programs. I was surprised to learn that Connecticut is home to 4,000 dams, Chuck. Connecticut is a state that has a lot of history with uh, industry and dams, and it's also a water-rich state. So, yeah, we're probably one of the most um, states per density with dams in, in, the, in the nation. Mm. So what was your reaction to uh, the findings that David Lieb um, has just uh, went through with us in terms of Connecticut's dams? I think uh, the Associated Press and the local reporters are doing a, a really a, a service to the public by putting this information out and make, making people aware about the issues with dams. I think they're doing a great job in looking at the data, and it was a lot of work to synthesize all this information and and put these stories out. So we're actually appreciative of their work. Mm. When we think about uh, the history of dams uh, in our state uh, because of industry, when we look at them today, um, tell us about some of the uses that, um, are there certain dams that we definitely need because of reservoirs, but then others, uh, could they be demolished or do they serve a purpose today? Yeah, we have a whole gamut of different situations with lakes. Some of them are used for recreation. Um, Some of them are used for drinking water supply. A a handful are used for hydropower. Um, And a lot of them are really relics of the Industrial Revolution that may not have a need today, or at least for the original purpose. Uh, But there are people who now use those water bodies that are created by those dams for recreation, and that's something we need to consider. Mm. Uh, We heard, again, David Lieb uh, mentioning that a majority of dams in our country are privately owned. Is that the case as well in Connecticut? Yeah, I believe it's about 84% of the dams in Connecticut are privately owned. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is a situation where this infrastructure is not entirely owned by a municipal or state government. 
And so then how does uh, your department come into play in terms of looking at the condition and making sure that um, if there is a, a rating that uh, might raise eyebrows, that these owners are maintaining them? Well, we regulate all dams, whether they be state-owned, municipally-owned, or um, privately owned. And so uh, each dam is required to be inspected at a rate based on the hazard classification that David explained earlier. Um, those inspections, as of, I believe, 2016, come into our agency. We used to do the inspections ourselves as an agency, but now that is owner-responsible inspections. Those inspections come into our agency. We review those inspections. We either agree or disagree with the findings, and then we receive respond to the dam owner with a letter of what we believe they need to do to take follow-up action, if any. And what is the law again in terms of how often these owners must be inspecting and then reporting to you the findings? For a high hazard dam, they need to inspect that every other year. For a significant hazard dam, that's every five years. And it goes down from there. Mm. Uh, well, David mentioned that there were 12 dams in Connecticut that were rated uh, poor, unsatisfactory. So in that, ca- in that case, those dams would be reviewed every other year? Well, in my understanding, there was nothing that was in the unsatisfactory category. They were all in the poor category. And the poor category, at least in Connecticut, means that based on the inspection, the identified repairs need to be done under a licensed professional engineer. It can't be done by the dam owner themselves. And so um, that's an important uh, note that I want to make is that we don't believe those dams that are um, in poor condition are ready to fail. We believe that there's repairs needed that need to be done by an engineer with the guidance of an engineer. Mm. So that's the difference. If we had unsatisfactory dams in Connecticut, we could take immediate action. Probably that immediate action would be to draw down the impoundment so that the dam would be safe by not failing. There would be no water pressure behind the dam. So we're not in that situation in Connecticut, but we do have 12 that were identified by the AP, and we know about those dams. None of those we feel are in immediate danger of failing. Immediate danger today, but we know that uh, with extreme weather events, that can change quickly. And so I guess the, the question we have for you is then, you know, what, is, what are the plans in place if there was extreme flooding um, in terms of these emergency plans, uh, people living around these dams? How, how quickly could the state respond? So how that works in Connecticut, I believe it was 2014, legislation and regulations were passed that required dams that are high hazard dams or significant hazard dams to have what we call emergency action plans. And what that is is a process that's identified in paper that the dam owner must must take, probably working with their engineer to monitor that dam and then to notify emergency officials downstream. And emergency officials are aware of the plan and they're supposed to take actions to evacuate if necessary. Mm. Uh, David Lee, I'll go back to you again, correspondent for the Associated Press. Uh, as we hear from Chuck Lee uh, within Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, um, Connecticut are doing a better job than, than other states? Well, I, I would think Connecticut is in the upper half of states as far as its attention to the dams in its, in its uh, jurisdiction. So just by way of comparison, obviously, Connecticut is a, a smaller state, but there are states that spend more. I mean, California, for example, is putting $20 million a year into its dam safety program and has 77 people in its office. And it had a scare with the Oroville Dam, which is the nation's tallest dam. Two years ago, it had a spillway failure and it had to evacuate nearly 200,000 people. And after that, uh, California revamped its laws uh, as requiring more information, uh, better emergency planning from dams in the state, And uh, it has spent $1 billion just repairing that dam alone. Mm. 
there are some other states that have taken actions, usually after problems. South Carolina, for example, had uh, dozens of dams fail in 2015 and 2016, literally dozens, after a tropical storm parked off the coast there. Uh, since then, it has tripled the personnel in its dam safety program, and it has increased the amount it's spending from about 250000 to about a million dollars a year. Uh, so it, it really varies across the country, but uh, some states have a much bigger backlog of high-hazard dams in poor condition. Uh, by comparison, if Connecticut has 12 of those, Georgia has 198 of those. North Carolina, 168. Pennsylvania, 145. So some states really have quite a few dams that are in this category of being high hazard and in poor or unsatisfactory condition. Mm. Uh, Chuck Lee, we heard uh, David Lieb talking about this dam in Nebraska that was rated, um, did not have a, a high hazard rating, but it still failed because of extreme flooding. And so when people hear that story, uh, it may make them cause for concern, especially if they live around a dam. And so uh, can you maybe explain more about how um, these dams are reviewed and so that people living near dams that might be on this list, these 12 uh, poor condition uh, dams in Connecticut, that they should not be worried? So how dams are reviewed is that the dam owner is required to hire a professional, licensed professional engineer to inspect that dam and submit that report to us. A lot of our work is following up to make sure that happens. So there are some dam owners that haven't been following up with regulations, and we are in contact with them to make sure they come into compliance. Does the department have enough resources to do that? Uh, David mentioned that since the recession, a lot of states, uh, their staffing um, has declined. I think he said Connecticut has eight full-time at one point. Has that declined at all with uh, Connecticut's financial issues? Right now, we have six people working full-time in our uh, dam safety regulatory program. It's pretty much stayed the same over the years. We're certainly busy. We have plenty of work, and we keep and we keep on that. So, um, you know, there's always uh, a need for more resources, but uh, we're pretty busy, and mm. you know, we're trying to follow up the best we can. Can I ask, in the state of Connecticut, who is advocating for more resources for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection for your specific program? Um, I would say there are some. Um, n- um, organizations that are pushing for dam removal in Connecticut, which is certainly a help to us, like uh, the Connecticut Fund for the Environment or Save the Sound or the Nature Conservancy are very active in working with private dam owners to see if they'd be willing to remove their dams. They come into us and we work in partnership with them to find funds to help move those process along. So those two organizations are really involved with dams in Connecticut. You're hearing Chuck Lee, Assistant Director of Dam Safety Programs for Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental environmental protection here on where we live. Uh, David Lieb is also with us by phone, correspondent for the Associated Press, as we uh, hear more about the AP's investigations of uh, the nation's dams. We're looking uh, now into uh, Connecticut's dams. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Margaret's calling from Roxbury. Margaret, you're on the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for this show on on an important problem. Uh, Beautiful show. I am one of those people who's actually advocated for more money for DEEP for its dam safety program. Um, My question uh, to you is, um, since in recent years the burden of the inspections has shifted to the dam owner, which was a surprise to many, it's quite heavy in some cases, are you all looking at more actively, not just waiting for groups, and do you have some funding to help with the removal of dams, which... Uh, there are many, many small dams, as you know, Mr. Lee, 
and um, if they could come down, we would have healthier rivers and we would have richer landowners. They wouldn't have to pay for that damn care. Do you have a, a proactive or any money for uh, being aggressive in that area? Well, thank you for that question, uh, Margaret. Um, I think, as you know, we've worked with your organization, Rivers Alliance, to try to move uh, forward the process of dam removal. Um, this past year, we worked with uh, the t city of Norwalk to remove the Flock Process Dam and the town of Watertown to remove the Hemingway uh, Dam. So when those projects come forward to us, we try to find funding sources that will meet the need of that project. Um, we might have some funds, what we call SEP funds or Supplemental Environmental Penalty Funds that we could use or grants from NOAA or um, EPA, and we try to put those projects together to assist those communities to remove those dams. We don't have any exact dedicated funding for that, but we do, I think, a very effective job in finding funding to make those projects uh, viable. Oh, after Hurricane Sandy, we hear a lot about resiliency money from the federal government. Any of that money being used uh, towards what we're talking about here, the dam removals in certain areas? Yes, yeah, some of that money was used to remove the flock process dam in Norwalk this year. Uh, we're also getting a Facebook comment from Lisa. She writes uh, that, sh that we have a dam on our property, and it's become a serious financial burden. We have to get our dam inspected every three to five years at the cost of $1,700. The price goes up about 500 each time it's inspected, and it's a huge liability for us, and we would love nothing more than to get rid of it. If we could drain our pond, we would. However, we don't want to destroy an ecosystem. Chuck Lee, she asks, what can they do? Well, with a pond like that, um, we get a lot of calls like that. We're happy to talk to uh, dam owners to see what, how we can help them out and look at what options are available to them. Um, if they think drawing that dam down, drawing that pond down, and then pond it down is going to be something that's going to be useful, we can have that conversation. But each situation is unique. Each situation needs to be looked at individually, and um, they should feel free to call our office and see how we can help them. And I mentioned uh, Chuck Lee, again, your assistant director of dam safety programs. How long has the state had this particular department? Dam safety? Uh, I believe it's been since the 1870s. In the 1870s, there were a series of dam failures. One is the Mill River in Massachusetts, and I believe it was the um, Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania. Two dams breached, and I think that really made um, states concern about dam safety. And those when, when dam safety programs across the country, I believe, started to really take off. Mm. I wanted to go back to David Lieb, correspondent for the Associated Press. Uh, he's based in Jefferson City, Missouri. Uh, in your story, David, you, uh, you and your colleagues talk uh, to a lot of officials, and including the Association of State Dam Safety Officials, who uh, told the AP almost every state faces a serious need to pump additional money and manpower into dam safety programs. Again, we talked earlier that uh, Connecticut um, isn't so bad compared to other states. You uh, talked about Georgia and also Hawaii. Hawaii, uh, what did you learn there? Well, we'll take, uh, take Georgia as an example. It has 198 dams that are high hazard or poor unsatisfactory condition on that list. And some of those are in rural areas, but some of those are in urban areas. For example, there is a reservoir in the city of Atlanta. They call it Reservoir Number 1. holds about 180 million gallons of water for the drinking supply, and the dam dates to the 1800s. Uh, the city, over the past few years, has taken the reservoir out of service, meaning they're not using it for drinking water because they had some problems with the dam. That doesn't mean there's not still water in it, that they're just not using it for their drinking water. They made repairs on it in 2017, but after that, they noticed water bubbling up on the other side of the dam next to some businesses again. 
So they pulled it back out of service. So if that dam were to fail, it would inundate more than a thousand homes, dozens of businesses, a railroad, part of Interstate 75, which leads into downtown Atlanta. It would it would cause some major disruption. Now, that being said, uh, as Chuck mentioned with the dams in Connecticut, there's not an indication that the dam is imminently in danger of failing, but it is in poor condition and it and it does need repairs. Uh, we talked to some business owners who live nearby it, uh, and there was a bit of concern, as you might understand. But that's just one example of of one of these dams across the country in a major urban area. Uh, you mentioned uh, you talked to people uh, near this area. Joel Iverson was one of them, co-founder of Monday Night Brewing, which was located in close proximity to this dam in Atlanta, Georgia. And he described to you times when the dam was leaking. Let's hear what he told you. There was kind of a period where there was this sort of perpetual seepage that was kind of coming down the hill and coming down the street. Um, but... Uh, but I think it's been probably a good six or nine months before we've seen, since we've seen any of that. Um, so um, my guess is that something, uh, you know, something was something was done to, to deal with that, and um, and that's why, you know, we're not seeing that ongoing seepage anymore. And David, how many people live near that particular dam? About a thousand homes are within the flood zone of that dam. So multiply that by what, two, three, four, you might get the number of people in that area. And then I mentioned Hawaii. What happened there? Well, Hawaii, uh, this is a little over a decade ago, there was a reservoir on top of a mountain, and they had a lot of rain in Hawaii, as often happens there. Uh, That reservoir gave way, and it unleashed a torrent of water down the side of that mountain, it wiped away uh, a person's home and an area that was in the valley. Several people died in that. And one of the issues with that is the owner of that dam, again, it was a privately owned dam, had apparently been filling in the spillway around the dam to try to make space to build some homes, uh, you know, sort of turn it into a recreational lake on top of this mountain. So when the dam was full, right, when there was a lot of heavy rain, that water didn't have a good place to release because the spillway, which is intended to provide a release when there's a lot of rain, had been filled in. That's a case where there were some criminal charges filed in addition to lawsuits. Uh, That man received a a jail sentence. Uh, He's since passed away. But that is probably one of the most recent examples of a combination of scenarios where you had a a dam that was not in the best of shape. You had some ownership that was uh, not properly maintaining the dam, uh, and the consequences were fatal. I want to take a a quick call. Uh, David is actually calling. Another David is calling from West Hartford. Uh, David, you're on the show. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm really appreciative of the fact that you're taking my call. Well, the point that I like to make is you had just mentioned that 84% of the dams in Connecticut is privately owned. So in that case, uh, and I don't know about the reservoir, but I was wondering who owns the water in those cases? It's privately owned and as public, do we pay money for those kind of water? And uh, the stance of Connecticut state government in that issue uh, plus, you know, recently there was an issue 
in Bloomfield regarding water plant and who owns the water came up. So I like I like to have some comments about that. Thank you so much. David, thank you for your call. I'm going to refer to uh, Chuck Lee, who's Assistant Director of Dam Safety Programs for Connecticut's uh, DEEP. That's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, Chuck, can you answer David's question? I can ask, answer part of that question. Really, you're talking about a water rights issue, which is um, not necessarily our area of expertise in the dam safety program. We do um, consider that a dam owner probably has certain water rights associated with owning that dam. They needed to be able to flood or own that property that is underneath that water body, which gives them flowage rights. Um, so there's a certain right there. And if they do have those water rights, they can manage that empowerment within the boundaries of the law, um, probably our diversion Act is really more, uh, would address that more thoroughly than the dam safety program. So I can say that to this subject, um, but it's really not a dam safety issue. It's really more of a water rights issue. And sometimes, especially in an old state like Connecticut, that can be a very complicated uh, source of law. I wanted to uh, go, go back to David Leap, correspondent for the Associated Press, uh, before we run out of time. Uh, David, what has been the response since this investigation came out by the Associated uh, Press? Uh, is there more attention by uh, policymakers on uh, worrying about uh, their dam infrastructure in their particular state? Well, I, I don't know if there will be policy changes in states. Uh, a lot of times this is going to require legislative action if they want to require more frequent inspections or if they want to toughen penalties and enforcement actions, uh, if they want to add more dams to the inspection list and decrease their exemptions. Many of these would require changes in state law. Uh, many legislatures will be convening in January, so I guess we'll see then uh, if there's any movement toward greater oversight. Well, David Lee, we want to thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live to talk about the, this investigation. You can learn more at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, David, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Staying with us is Chuck Lee, Assistant Director of Dam Safety Programs for Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Coming up, we're going to talk about when Middletown's Crystal Dam broke. What's its condition today? We're going to hear more after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired November 26th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've learned the state has more than 4,000 dams. Luckily, just a few have seen in the state have seen um, failures. And Middletown residents uh, may remember 1961. I wanted to welcome into our conversation now Jordan Fenster, editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. Take us back to 1961, Jordan. What happened at the Crystal Lake Dam? So it's it was actually fascinating. If you look at some of the archival photos from... The, from after the event, it looks like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. I mean, the, the entire Crystal Lake was drained. The dam itself breached. The people are standing in this, in, in, uh, amid boulders and trees. What happened is um, in the days prior to the dam breaching in April of 1961, investigators had identified that the dam was – there was some seepage, I'm sure – 
Chuck can explain more about seepage, but uh, and there there had been a lot of rain, um, and out of nowhere, early in the morning, it just broke huge chunks of of boulders rolling down the rolling down the embankment, giant uh, a four foot wall of water, mm-hmm. trees bashing into homes, people standing on top of their roofs, clinging to fences. Amid the water, there were three injuries, no deaths, thank goodness, um, and literally millions of gallons of water. Um, and uh, some, it was interesting because some some residents described only uh, the water lapping at the edges at the edges of their property. Other residents described water as high as the first floor of their homes. Uh, it was a pretty dramatic scene. So a fairly lucky uh, that it could, wasn't worse. And so this dam was actually rebuilt when? Uh, just a few years later in 1966, it was rebuilt. Trans- ownership was uh, – it was originally owned by the private company there, the Russell Corporation. Um, ownership transferred to the state at that time. Um, and it was it was uh, built anew, um, a brand new, beautiful dam apparently. And I understand, though, that this is, uh, Crystal Lake Dam is one of the 12 that the AP investigation found uh, to be uh, in a particular rating of poor. And so uh, what does that mean for residents and the city of Middletown? Has there been discussion about what to do with this particular dam? I would say that there's been some concern among local residents. But um, look, I went up to the, to Chuck's office. He was kind enough to show me all of the blueprints uh, the, uh, for the repairs that are that are almost ready to get going, I guess. Um, my understanding is that the con- that the current condition of the dam is reasonably good. Um, it was, there was a, some concern in the 90s. Uh, there was a spillway, uh, the spillway was blocked. Um, that, those repairs went, went uh, happened in the 1990s. And uh, as recently as the 2016 inspection, um, which was the most recent inspection of the dam, it was in decent shape um, with just some upgrades, I think, that were necessary. The reason, as I think Chuck said earlier, that the dam is rated in poor condition is because it it needs an engineer's oversight in order to make those upgrades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Lee, can you tell us more about Crystal Lake Dam and what uh, Jordan has just mentioned? Well, I think Jordan's story... Um, that was published a few weeks earlier, gave a lot of good information about the actual situation with the Crystal Lake Dam. Our plans for that dam is we want to reduce the downstream slope of the dam so that we can maintain it more easily. Right now it's a stone or what we would call a grouted riprap. We want to make that a grassed um, bank so that we can mow it rather than using hand tools to cut the woody vegetation. We need to maintain uh, the dam in a way that there is no woody vegetation on it. We also need to make some adjustments to the spillway so that it doesn't have problems with blocking up. Um, we've so far with this project, we've um, hired an engineer. We've done preliminary designs. We've also purchased a property uh, to the side of the dam that allow us better access. And we're negotiating with adjacent property owners to get um, access to actually do the project. And that's where we are with that project. Uh, in terms of uh, the, making these particular adjustments and repairs, who would be paying for that? That's going to be the state of Connecticut. The state of Connecticut is the owner of that dam. We're the um, responsible party for the dam. And we estimate that that project, when it's completed, including purchase of property, is going to be about a $2 million project. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan, we heard Chuck mention uh, that the state is currently negotiating with uh, property owners adjacent to that area. So that can be a sticking point, uh, trying to find a compromise. And tell us what's going on there. 
So the property owners are a group, a, a national fraternal organization called the Polish Falcons. Um, there's a what they call a falcon's nest there. Um, they use it for events. They rent it out for weddings, things like that. And I think their concern, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for them, but but their concern, I think, is that. Um, well, I think what the what the state would like is access to the dam, better access to the dam, uh, and what they want is to preserve their views, their the views and the the usage of that property is, I think, their main concern. They they just want to make sure that the that the weddings that they hold there, the events that they hold there, have that tree line, have that beautiful view that they that they currently have, and and. Um, my understanding from the Polish Falcons is that they are ready and willing to negotiate, that those negotiations have been ongoing for a while, and it should be wrap, wrapped up, I think, by by the end of this year. I'm looking at a story from Hearst, Connecticut Media, talking about um, other times when the state has been um, has approved uh, money to uh, help uh, boost capacity of the Dooley Pond Dam located near Route 17 south of Brushy Hill Road. Um, but this was something that the State Bond Commission had to approve. And we've heard that Governor Lamont, uh, again, doesn't want to see a lot of borrowing. And so does that put these municipalities and the state in a precarious situation if uh, there needs to be money to replace particular or repair and the money isn't easy to come by. My, my understanding is that funding has been difficult to obtain for the Crystal Lake project. But, uh, and Chuck can correct me if I'm wrong, that those issues have been resolved. Well, I would want to speak to it is that we have gotten money from the bond commission to do the design work and permitting and purchase some of the property. So that's part of that project has already been approved by the state bond commission. We have yet to go to the state bond commission and ask for money to do the construction because we're not quite ready to implement the project. But when we have a project that's um, permitted and fully designed and property uh, easements have been negotiated, we'll go to the bond commission, and at that time, the bond commission will decide if that's something the state can afford to move Mm -hmm. forward with. The bond commission usually meets monthly, so if there's an opportunity one month, not one month, it might be (laughs) in the next month. But considering Governor Lamont's debt diet, uh, again, uh, there there is a lot of uh, scrutiny from his administration about which uh, projects uh, to be funding. That's true, there is a scrutiny of those projects, but uh, last June we actually received $1.3 million to, from the Bond Commission to move forward with some of our uh, critical projects. We just got a quick uh, Facebook comment from George uh, who wants to know about the Stevenson Dam, a big dam with Derby and Shelton and a lot of homes downstream. Uh, he wants to know what the condition is, considering also the steady traffic, so not even uh, this question, a question of, of how flooding would impact homes, but major roadways. One thing about the Stevenson's Dam, that's actually owned by a power utility. It's a hydroelectric dam, and that's really not regulated by the state of Connecticut. It's regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. And so our involvement is a little less so than most um, dams in the state of Connecticut. Um, But because it's uh, that type of dam, it's a very large dam. It's one of the larger dams in the state of Connecticut regulated by FERC. Um, The condition of that dam is always looked at very closely. Um, You may be getting some listeners calling up uh, your department, uh, Chuck, after today's show, wondering about the condition of their dam. So if community members are concerned or want to know more, um, how can they learn more? Well, they can um, go to our website. We have a lot of information on our website, and um, I think 
You can spend a lot of time looking and learning about dams from our website, or they can always call our department and um, have a conversation. There are five engineers that will be working that might respond to that question, and uh, we'll dig into our files and try to get people answers. I'll make sure that we link up to, uh, again, uh, Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection website at wmpr.org slash where we live to learn more about the dam safety program. But I do want to thank Chuck Lee for joining us, Assistant Director of Dam Safety here in Connecticut. Chuck, thank you. Thank you. Also, thank you to Jordan Fenster, editor at Hearst Connecticut Media. We've linked up to all of the great reporting uh, that you and your colleagues have done, including that look back of what happened to Crystal Lake. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Also, thanks today to Carmen Baskoff on the phones. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show. Download our show and learn more about it on your favorite podcast app. 